you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Psalms 2. Psalms 2. Somebody tell me, why are we in Psalms 2 today? Amen. So what we do, just so you know, didn't plan this, this passage for you, but God did. So we are here today primarily not to see what God has for us. But we want to see God. And he has something to say to us today, so I hope you've got the notes there. They're in the back if you don't. As you find Psalms, Psalms 2, as you read through the New Testament, what you're going to find is Psalms 2 is one of the most quoted passages in all of the New Testament. It's either quoted directly or alluded to over and over again, yet it's probably one of the least preached. And so by God's sovereign grace, we're here this morning to hear what it says. And so as you stand to your feet, out of reverence to God's word, and we do because this is God speaking, stand with me. Let's be reminded of something, though. God's word is more than just literature, but it is literature. This is a poetry. So let's listen to it with those ears, the words of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury saying. As for me. I have set my king. On Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise. Be, ro- be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, Lord, as we have read your words, these are yours. What you have said about yourself and your only begotten Son. Oh God, that we would take heed to the text today and be wise and be warned and take refuge in the only name that saves. His name is Jesus, the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
And so as we began last week, we said, remember that chapter 1 and chapter 2 is important. They give us the very keys whereby we can understand the rest of the Psalms. Last week we said that Psalms 1 says the instructions of Yahweh are blessings. The blessings are in the imperatives. To reject his imperatives is to reject him and to reject blessing. To reject his instructions is to never experience the abundant life. Because the blessings are inside of those things. And so he's beckoning us to wisdom. Not just to put up with God's instructions, but to delight in them. This week we see the futility. That it's futile to war against the king of kings. He does so with this Psalms 2 and be turning to Acts 2. Psalms 2 is called the royal psalm. It's also called a messianic psalm, as there are many of those in the collection of the psalms. But I want you to see this. Psalms, I mean Acts 2, verse 24. We're going to be, I would recommend too, as you turn here, make Acts a regular part of your reading over the next few months. As we move towards autonomy, we're going to be spending time in Acts in the coming future. We want to know what the church looks like, and so this is important. We see what are they referring to, and how do they speak? Acts 2, look at verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades and let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. You see, it's another messianic psalm. And what is, what are they saying? What is the New New Testament church believing? The messianic psalms was pointing to Jesus. He is the anointed one. He's who the psalms is talking about. And so this royal psalm is important because we understand that Jesus came from the line of David. It is also important because he is the anointed, the sent one from God. And so to do this, this poem is is written with like a four part. The narrator, one commentary said this is an expression of the Trinity. We're not going to see it. I, I, I took one text out. One text said, speaks of this text, quotes it, and said this is a psalm of David inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we see, as it were, the narrator speaking. Now we, then we see the Lord, Yahweh, come in and he speaks. Then we see the anointed one speaks. And then the narrator comes back and draws a conclusion. But here's what it's... This is true. It speaks of this. There's a lot of connection this week. To understand Psalms 2, you've got to have a connection to Psalms 1. There's, there's contrast. Where do we, what do we meditate in? Where do we sit? Where do we stand? The wicked, remember, meditating on ungodly things, sitting with ungodly people, disdaining the community of faith. But see, your rebellion is never passive. So this is an active rebellion. But listen, this is the point. Verses 1 to 3, this, this rebellion is in vain. But it is against the Lord and His anointed. So look at verse 1. Here's the question. 
Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This word rage means anger. It means uproar. But you don't want to think about this as why do the nations have these little small temporary fits of rage? This is a deep-seated hatred of what's coming out is anger. It's a hatred. This word nations can mean people groups. It's, it's telling you the wicked, the ungodly people that's already explained in Psalms 1 is saying that's they're the Gentiles, they're the heathen, they're the wicked. They plot. I'm going to quote Spurgeon a lot. He says it so well. We have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. In other words, it is part of our fallen human nature not to love God, but to hate Him. And we express our hatred as we express our hatred for the imperatives of God. So why do they rage? You see, the psalmist, the narrator, is not surprised or worried about the rebellion of the nations. Matter of fact, he's astonished. He's saying, why do the nations bother? That's what he's really saying. What are they thinking? Don't they know? Their plans are empty, verses 2 and 3. The kings have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. When we move to an autonomy, our name of our church is going to be Battleground Community Church. And make no mistake, as you read this in the text, there is a war. There is a battle happening. The world has their plans and God, we're going to see it. God has a planned, determined plan and it cannot be thwarted. Doesn't stop the world from trying. And so we see verses two and three. That's what that's what the psalmist is trying to get you to remember. Remember, blessed is the man who walks in godly counsel, stands with godly people, abides in a community of godliness. And not what they're doing. Here's the picture the narrator wants you to get. This is like four gnats. There's little gnats. These are like four gnats who come together and says, you see that elephant over there? I think we can take him. So I tell you what let's do. Let's meet together on Friday night. We're going to have a little powwow. Y'all come over to my house. We're going to sit around our table. We're going to come up with a plan. This is what the narrator is saying. This is ridiculous. Make no mistake. The kings of the earth set themselves. He's contrasting. This is military language. We're going to come together. We're going to band together. We're going to stand together. We're going to take counsel together. That literally means they, they sit together. They sit around a table. These four gnats try, try and determine a plan to overthrow the Almighty. And it is against the Almighty. You see that? It's against the Lord and against His who? His anointed. You see, here's the truth. It's good news for you if you're in Christ today. You're part of the church. You can't attack a believer and not attack the Lord. And the Lord don't miss it today if that's happened. He doesn't miss it. You, you can't attack the Father and not mess with the Son. You can't mess with the Son and not be attacking the Father. And you can't attack His kids without, without incurring something of judgment in Him. This is a unity in Trinity and the rebellious attack them. They make their plans. What is their plans? Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds and apart. 
apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you see the there? They're bondage. You see, they, they feel like this instruction of God. Slavery. It's slavery. I'm going to throw this off. They want nothing to do with the mandates of God. They see them as slavery. They see them as miserable. They don't see them as a delight. They want to bring His rule and reign to an end. They want to be their own gods. They don't want to be restrained. We want to do whatever is right in our own eyes. Sound familiar? Remember that? Let's look at their rebellious heart. Because the heart is what leads to the actions. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Let's just do a contrast. Get us in a habit of doing this. What the Psalms is doing here. Let, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. We, we look at this passage a lot. Matthew 11, verse 28. Now listen to this. Listen to it in contrast. Remember he said last week. Inward grace produces an outward life. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Spurgeon says it this way, to the graceless, the neck neck of the yoke is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. In other words, to the graceless neck, this yoke's like, oh, how are we going to get this off? We've got to get this off. This is miserable. You see, that's the sign of an unredeemed person. That's the sign of no inward grace. This is what's going on inside their heart. We hate it. We despise it. Let's overthrow it. And to this vain rebellion, the Lord responds. Verse 4. How does he respond? Look at the text. I'm not making this up. This is what it says. Look back at it with me. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Just what it says, look. Understand this. This is important in, in the Psalms. You're going to see it all through there. The Bible oftentimes it gives human traits to God. And it also gives them sometimes even animal traits to God. It covers us with his wings. doesn't mean that God has wings. It means that there is a greater reality to who God is. The only way we can understand him. This is what the Bible says. And here, make sure we make no mistake. To this threat, to this rebellion, the Lord laughs. He sits in the heavens. You see that? That's important. Contrasting again. He's seated on his throne. But not only that, look at the Lord holds them in derision. What does that mean? It means he mocks them. He's seated on his throne. He sees these little four gnats sitting around a table, planning on how they're going to overthrow him. <laughs> He mocks at them. That's what he's doing. I'm not, this is what it says. Psalms 59. Flip, flip over there with me. It's not the only place that God responds this way. This is throughout the Psalms. Throughout Scripture. Psalms 59. Look at verse 7. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with, with swords in their lips. For who... They think, will hear us. Verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. You see, Psalms 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be bargained with. He cannot be intimidated. He's God. 
And he's seated and he looks at the plans of the rebels and he laughs at them and then he speaks. And when he speaks, he terrifies. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And we say, hold on, God gets mad? No, brothers and sisters, God has wrath. He is furious. Romans 1.18, remember? don't know if that's in your notes, but you know it. For the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all, all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He speaks. He laughs. And then he speaks at the rebels. Psalms 37, verse 13, has another laugh in it. It also shows us something of God, of why God can't be intimidated by his enemies. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Do you see why God can't be intimidated? He can't be swayed. He sees there. You see, this was like, do you remember when the children of Israel were in bondage? Going to kill Moses, to kill the children and throw them, in the, throw them in the water. And ends up Moses puts in the water. He pulls them out of the water. He's saved. Pharaoh tries to destroy Using one thing that God preserves Moses with. And then what happens to Pharaoh's army? They drowned in the water. So why was God not threatened by all of Pharaoh's ranting? All the things he did. Because he seen his end. He determined it. God's got a plan. They've got a plan. What is God's plan? Look at verse 6. As for me, <laughs> I speak in here. We need to listen to this. Yahweh speaking. As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill, the emphatic I. I have already done it. You remember this. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Those words should not bother you. They are your greatest hope. Our king is a sovereign king. Emphatic eye. This is the picture. This is what he's saying. The Davidic kings as they come down. King would be anointed with oil. This was a sign the Holy Spirit is, was coming on them with their power for their rule and reign. This is what Yahweh is saying. In the throne room of God. This is where this scene is happening. In the throne room of God. It's too late. I, I, I don't know what y'all were down there planning, but newsflash, I'm God. I've already said a king. He's my anointed. In other words, there's a king on the throne. Not you. Not you. Then the Lord's decree comes in. Now we get to hear the anointed speak. Let's make no mistake. Let's flip over to Romans. Yeah, I hope we've already been clear about who the anointed is. But, but let's make sure there's no doubt in our minds. Because there's no doubt in Scripture's mind. There's no doubt in the church's mind. Romans 1 verse 1. 
Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy scriptures concerning his son, listen, it's important, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the king. He is the anointed one. And he has the proper lineage to be king. Verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Begotten. You see, every one of us, whether you ever really knew your mama or daddy or maybe you knew one and not the other, it doesn't matter, you had one. Every one of us was born from a mama and a daddy. Only Jesus. One father all of eternity Jesus had one eternal father Hebrews 1 verse 1 long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son listen to this whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world Paul's who created the world Jesus did he is appointed the heir of all things, whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen to this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more superior to the angels as the name Listen, he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. Listen to who he quotes, verse 5. For to whom the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You see where he quotes? He quotes Psalms 2. He said, make no mistake. The anointed one has divine lineage. But also, Acts 13, verse 32. Jesus Christ and his humanity... Descended from David. Listen to verse 32. As, as we, and we bring the good news that what God promised to his fathers, verse 43, this he fulfilled to us through their children by raising Jesus. Listen to what he did. Listen to what he's quoting. As also it is written in 2 Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. Our Jesus is the anointed king who raised in the flex in a glorified body and sits in that glorified body on the right hand of the father. This is our king. This is the anointed one. He has the right lineage. Truly man and truly God. He's also got the inheritance. Look at verse 8. Back to Psalms 2. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. This is a father speaking to the son, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. <laughs> Newsflash to, to all these little gnats down here making their plans. Those nations belong to him. They belong to the Son. Psalm, Psalms 82. The nations are His. They're His inheritance. It says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. 
This is the difference between a believer. You see, the believer lives this way. This is why generosity, whether it's with our life or our giving at the end of the service, is not a problem for a believer because we live as stewards. We don't own anything. Because why? Because we have submitted to the Lordship of Christ. He owns it all. He's got the right to dictate the plans for your life and not you. That's what it means to be a Christian. He makes the plans. We rest in that. We're simply stewards of it. The nations hate that. <laughs> they hate it. They say, oh, no, no, that's ours. The king says, sorry, you're... the nations are his inheritance. And listen, this is good news. It drives our mission. Psalms 22. Psalms 22, verse 27. It says the nations are also turned to him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is why in June we're going to go to the Ivory Coast because when we speak his name, the nations will believe. Someone's going to believe. This is why we go. Make no mistake, the the king's got the right lineage. He's also got the right inheritance. And from this point on, this is going to be rather sober. He's also got the power. He's not only got the right to be king, he's got the power to conquer his enemies. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We have this picture. Turn with me to Revelation 12. I want you to see it. Jesus is coming, friends. And when he comes, in one of his hands is going to be a rod of iron. Revelation 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now flip over a few pages to Revelation 19, 15. We read this last week. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You see this language completely paralleled with Psalms 2. This is the king. He's got the right lineage. He's got the nations as his inheritance. And one day he is coming with a rod of iron. And here's the picture. He's going to break them into pieces like pots, like clay pots, never to be put back together again. The ruin of the wicked is certain. It is unstoppable. It is terrible. It is complete. And it is final. I started right here to quote from Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but I didn't want to take him out of context. I'll post his sermon later and you can listen to it. But listen, all this is true today. It's right out of God's Word. And here's what the narrator does at the end of this, verse 10 to 12. He said, okay, since you see this, since you see that the plans of men To overthrow the Almighty are vain. They're useless. God is good. God is loving. But God is just. And He will not tarry forever. How are you going to respond? You see, this demands a a response. A proper response to a sovereign king. 
So the narrator comes back into the picture and speaks in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, you see who he's talking to? These ones who are rebelling. Be wise. Be warned. Be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Let's just stop for a second. Look up here at me. I want you to look at me and then look at the text and just answer this simple question. According to this text, did his enemies make him Lord or are they commanded to submit to his lordship? Listen, this has radical implications for your life. It has radical implications for the gospel we proclaim. We do not make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. That's what it's saying in the text today. That we must be warned and we must be wise. The warning that God might save them in their rebellion. But he could and should damn them in their rebellion. This is the gospel. He urged them to make a a wise response to God's anointed. Don't rebel against him. He's God. So what is that proper response? He tells us that it's twofold. It should look like joyful service and humble submission. I'm so thankful for men who come before us who gives us these wise things and encourages. I heard John MacArthur say one time when it comes to some of these issues, he says, he told somebody one time, don't expect me to unscrew the inscrutable. I was like, oh, that's good. I got to remember that. You know, I got to i got to simply say this morning that a proper response in your life looks like both the fear of God and absolute rejoicing. That they are together. I just want you to look at there on the screen. Psalms 100, 2 and 3 says this. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It's He that's made us and we're His. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. You see that? Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. But at the same time, Psalm 25 verse 12 said, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose. In other words, the only way we can receive this instruction that we need to delight in is in the fear of God. Psalms 145.19 says he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So not only he instructs those who fear him, he rescues those who fear him. Proverbs 15.16 says better better is a little with the fear of God than great treasure and trouble with it. Better to have almost nothing and have the fear of God intact than to be wealthy in your own arrogance and be headed for judgment. So we see this. And I ask you, as Pastor Micah read Isaiah 6, when he saw God, did he respect him like you respect your boss? Is that all it means? What did he do? Brothers and sisters, what did Isaiah do when he saw God? He fell on his face. He said, woe is me. I've seen the Lord. I'm sinful and so are you. (laughs) And we've seen God. Spurgeon says, 
There must be a holy fear mixed with the Christian joy. Fear without joy is torment. And joy without holy fear would be presumption. If you don't have the fear of God in your joyful service before God, you will treat grace as an entitlement, something that you deserve. And for the Christian, they must not respond with an entitled presumption on the Almighty, but with a humble submission. That's the second response. Look at it. Kiss the Son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now listen, we have already clearly said that God and his scripture and says that this is talking about Jesus Christ. And here's the warning to the wise, the wise rebels today. He said, be wise, you rebels. Kiss the son. There's two, two aspects to that, at least. One is that you must kiss in submission, in allegiance and loyalty to him as the king. The other way we kiss the son is with affection. But notice this, it says kiss the son, lest you perish in the way. Psalms is clear about the ungodly. At any moment, nothing is stopping God from their perishing but his sheer mercy. No submission, listen. No submission, no peace. No peace, no affection. No affection, no refuge. You see, it is to Isaiah and to all of those who have come into the presence of the Almighty who respond in fear who hear these beautiful words. Fear not. And listen, if you don't experience the fear of God, you can't experience the fear not of God. You won't experience, until you experience the submission before God, you won't experience the kiss of God. It is to all those who submit to the king that he adopts as his own. Good news, brothers and sisters. 1 John 2.23 says, No one denies the Son as the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. We get the Father. We get His affection. We get to sit on His lap, this holy God that should have consumed us in His glory. We sit on His lap because we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. You see, submission leads to affection. It's good news. This is why he's, This is what He wants. He wants verse 12 for them. He does. I hope you have the loss of the souls of the people you love on your minds today when you hear this text because it's true. We long for them to take refuge in Him, don't we? Blessed are those who take refuge. Psalms 91.2 says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You see, this isn't this reluctant thing of God to say, I'll go along with what, what else can I do? No, this is I trust Him. This word refuge means to take shelter, to seek shelter. I told my kids, and I tell these little boys and these little girls to come a knocking too. It is a dangerous thing. To stand on the peripheral of my family and start throwing rocks at them. 
Because when you mess with them and you mess with me, and the best place for even my kids to be is not on the outside of my family throwing rocks at us, but to be close to the Father. You see, even the earthly reflects the divine. It pays. It's you need to be close to the Father. The closer to the Father, the closer to the Lord we get. This is where the refuge is. There's no refuge in the world. There's no safety. There's no eternal security. There's nothing that can protect us, you see. I'm afraid that many of us, as we go through Psalms in our life, has used the Psalms like a good luck charm. Dark valleys come, here's what we do. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. And we chant it as if this is some kind of charm of a mystical experience that can somehow ward off the evil spirits. Listen, that's not Christianity. The Psalms reveals God. He's the one who protects you. Not a mystical experience, but the God of the Psalms. And so here's what I'm saying this morning. We must wrestle. And we must come to terms with the God and the anointed one that is in Psalms 2. Because you see, Psalms 3 is next. You know what's in Psalms 3? David says, my own son wants to kill me. My own son, my love, he's had to leave the kingdom. It's what's coming. You see, if you don't understand Psalms 2, Psalms 3 or Psalms 23 will never be comforting to you. It is in the valley of darkness that we cry out to a sovereign shepherd. Isn't it? It is only him that can comfort you in the darkest nights of your soul. So my question is, how sovereign is your Jesus? And are you taking refuge in him alone? And I know there's a good text on the, the info, the, your sermon guides, and I'm, I may write a, a blog about that. But I just got a confession to make here at the end of the sermon. Sometimes your pastor really wants to be practical at the end right there and draw a good practical application, you know, three ways to us to, and we're going to do that. It's not where we need to go. We need to go to Revelation 11. I'd really like for you to see this. Revelation 11, verse 15. We're going to, praise team's going to come up in just a second and sing, Behold your God, and that's really what we need to do. You see, sometimes the application is that you just need to see God. You don't need to say right now how I need to apply this to my life. What you need to say is, Oh Lord, I want to see you. I just want you to know Jesus is coming, brothers and sisters. I want you to know how he's going to come. Look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power 
and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the times for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. One day, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ will return with his reward in one hand and a rod of iron in the other. So my question to you this morning, and every one of us ought to answer this question, when I read this text, were you hit with somber gratefulness that by his mercy we have submitted to his lordship and now we're actually looking forward to this day? Or when I read this text, were you hit with both dread or anger? And so I, I simply bring you back to Psalms 2. For the Holy Spirit gives us this invitation and this warning. Kiss the Son, lest you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So God, we say amen to your word. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to show us who you are. For when we pray, do we not pray to a God who is sovereign and who could change our situation? Lord, you are good. You're our sovereign Lord. You have perfect knowledge, absolute power, infinite love. And Lord, we don't. We don't. Lord, these lost in our life, we can't save them. I don't have the power to change anyone's nature. But you do. You proved it when you saved us. It is to you that we cry because there is no other to cry to. I cannot cry to anyone else that has the power and the perfect wisdom and the perfect discernment and the unconditional love to love each one of us the way we should be loved and that we must be loved. And so, Lord, we can say as one body, we trust you. But Lord, we don't always understand you. We don't. We confess it. But Lord, whom do we have on this earth to turn to but you? So now, Lord, we simply want to behold you for who you are and then climb up as close to you as we can and rest in you. Lord, being invited is not right now resting in God. Lord, would do you do your work in their life? Would you fill your children? Would you do your wonder-working, regenerating power today? One day, 
we as one family may gather around your throne and worship you. Until then, Lord, will you now accept our worship? In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me and let's sing.